This is episode 291 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported in the same way that the work of William Shakespeare is supported. That's by our patrons. Patrons power the work we do here by making it possible for us to research amazing guests and bring you fabulous history every week. If you would like to become a patron, you can get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show, as well as have the opportunity to contribute directly to programming by submitting your own questions to be asked during an interview. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Hi, I'm Susie Edge, a medical doctor and historian and author of Mortal Monarchs, A Thousand Years of Royal Death. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. They usually did have some type of handkerchief to carry with them. Usually people would have a small piece of cloth. They were warned not to clean their teeth with toothpicks or with rubbing a napkin over their teeth. They were warned not to do that. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Welcome back this week for part two of our Table Manners series here on That Shakespeare Life. Shakespeare's plays refer to a napkin at least 20 times, including As You Like It, where Rosalind mentions a bloody napkin, and in Hamlet, the title character is offered a napkin to rub thy brows. In Henry IV, part one, Falstaff talks about someone's shirt being made of two napkins sewn together. Mary Wives of Windsor scorns the greasy napkin, while Othello complains that Desdemona's napkin is too small. When it comes to sizes, shapes, material, and uses for napkins in Shakespeare's lifetime, we're looking to Mara Graber, director of the RSVP Institute for Etiquette and the founder of Etiquipedia, the online encyclopedia of etiquette, to walk us through the history of napkins and their uses for Shakespeare's lifetime. Mara is here for two episodes with us on dining and etiquette for the 16th century, and today is part two in our series on table history. We'll have links to part one in the show notes for today's episode. Maura J. Graber is an author and a consultant and the site creator and editor for the Etiquipedia Etiquette Encyclopedia, a free online resource for all things etiquette and etiquette history. Maura has been teaching etiquette since 1990 and runs the RSVP Institute of Etiquette at the historic Graber Olive House in Ontario, California. Her books, Reaching for the Right Fork and What Have We Here, are bestsellers among those who study etiquette, antiques for the table, and dining history. Most recently, she has worked as a historical etiquette consultant for Julian Fellow's HBO show, The Gilded Age. Hello, Mara. Welcome back to That Shakespeare Life. We're excited to dive in here to part two of this series on etiquette from turn of the 17th century. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. In the last episode, we touched on personal cutlery and the idea that diners would bring their own eating implements to the table. But I wonder if you could tell us more about what encompassed personal cutlery. Most diners, well, most men had with them at all times a knife or a dagger. 
They would use their personal knife. This is where Europeans got a reputation for dining with their swords, barbarians who ate with their swords. They were using their personal knives for eating. This was in a time period where it it was prior to it being an edict that you had to have rounded, wide blades. So this was still in a time period where they were, you know, rather rough. You would be using your your personal knife, and that was quite sharp. You would bring your knife. You would also have a spoon, usually between the two of you, if it was a husband and wife, that you would share. You would also share your bowl uh, when you were eating out of the bowl. But of course, the the host or hostess would would uh, provide that to you. Forks weren't being brought with people until the 1600s, and especially the early 1700s in England, but they had become very popular throughout Europe prior to getting to England or becoming popular in England. The Catholic Church and the Christian Church, Protestant Church, Anglican Church in England really frowned on the use of forks. In fact, the British Navy was banned from using them. People in the Navy could not use the forks at the table. They were considered effeminate until the end of the 17th century. So bringing your own utensils, it was usually people that did a lot of traveling. And these were foldable utensils that you would have either a fork that fit into the end of a spoon at one point, or you would also have them, they would fold. So you'd have a a fork with a center that would bend, that then you would also have a spoon bowl that you would fit it into. So it would be one or two pieces that would create a nice couple of pieces of flatware, or you would have a case set where in a case you would have a fork, a spoon, and a knife, similar to what they make for Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, where you've got the implements that fold into one another, like a folding pocket knife. You would have a pocket fork that would fold into itself. The tines would fold into the handle. The same thing with the spoon. Those were very popular to bring with you because once forks became very popular, then you had taverns or inns having to buy sets of them or collect enough of them. So they had enough of them for large traveling groups. Generally, they did not have enough forks, so they would have to wash them in between courses. What about drinking vessels at the table? What kind of glassware or drink container would have been available on a 16th century table? Well, glass has been around for a long time, but glass was extremely expensive. And for the the same reason that I never started collecting glass here in Southern California, earthquake country, glasses break very easily. So Back then, you'd be drinking out of something like pewter. If you were very wealthy, if you were in the upper classes, you might have silver. You might have gilded silver. Uh, Glass, even for the very wealthy, there wasn't a whole lot of it. They were using chalices and goblets made of different metals. You would have maybe a goblet made of wood. You could have goblets and, and even vessels to pour from made out of leather. And these were waterproofed, leak-proof. So these were, you know, have held up for many years, the examples that they do have of them in museums. So you might have a leather cup 
that you're drinking from. And I assume it was treated somehow where it t- that would make it waterproof where it wouldn't leak. And, and I guess it does accomplish exactly what you mentioned of being shatterproof at that point. Yes. When you think of seeing people with, with water that they're carrying in bags, those were made of leather and they're waterproof. You know, this was something that you saw even 100 years ago, 200 years ago in this country where they were using leather or some type of treated fabric, but generally leather, that was the one that was going to hold it in the best. And again, it was treated. So what kind of plates would have been used? Were there multiple size plates like bread plates and little bitty plates for dipping sauces? Or was there just one kind of food holder that was more generic? There was one type of food holder for for people dining from them that was very generic. Originally, it was, if you imagine a round loaf of bread slicing off the top three quarters, you've got the bottom of the bread you would have the food in that and you would eat the food from the top of it. It was called a trencher and the bottom of it would soak up all of the grease and the liquid and the oils. And at the end you could eat the trencher or eat the plate as they say, or you could give it to the poor. They called it leaving your manners at the table. If you left some food in the trencher or on the trencher. Trenchers later in the 1500s became large wooden discs. Some of them are decorated very beautifully that you can find in museums. And these were what were the plates people ate off of. Again, they were called trenchers. The larger overall group would be eating out of one giant dish that they were serving themselves from or several different dishes on the table that they were serving themselves from. So it was a lot of communal helping yourself to different foods at the table. So if you had, say, six people at the table, you might have eight to nine different dishes that you could choose from and dip your hands into. You didn't have small bread plates, that sort of thing. Now, were meals served on individual plates or what did getting the food to your trencher look like? Was there something that was passed around or were you served by someone that would bring like a soup pot to the table and then dip it out? Or what did that look like to actually get your food from the communal plates to then something that that you could swallow? This depended completely on the type of home that you were dining in. Wherever you were were dining, if this is if you're talking about the upper classes you're going to have lower classes serving you if you're talking about maybe more middle class you're going to be serving yourself and there were people there with basins for you to wash your hands on cleanliness was important to them to this extent where they needed to wash their hands before eating and they would scoop their hands into these communal bowls there were some forks if something was very hot Generally, though, it was knives or spoons used for scooping. My next question comes directly from my boys who knew I was putting this episode together and submitted this question to the show specifically. So boys, I am asking this one just for you, Elliot and Ty. They wanted to know if it was acceptable to burp at the table during Shakespeare's lifetime. They read that in some cultures, it's considered polite to burp after a meal, and they wondered if Shakespeare would have had something similar at his table. 
He might have had people burping at his table, but it <laughs> certainly wasn't sanctioned. This wasn't something that was allowable. Table manners during the Renaissance period, Giovanni della Casa wrote a lot about table manners and uh, basically Miss Manners. Uh, Judith Martin summed it up as don't be gross. You were not supposed to pass gas of any kind at the table. So burping was not allowed. That was more of a, a Middle Eastern thing. A lot of kids hear this, especially people that have done any tours in the military over in the Middle East. They'll come back and say, oh, you're supposed to burp. You know, in a lot of cultures in the Middle East and Asia, it's considered proper to burp. It's not considered an insult to show people how much you appreciated and enjoyed the meal. But over in Europe, that was very different. You, as I said, weren't supposed to stuff your napkin in the minute you sat down at the table into your shirt or something as if you were going to, you automatically knew you were going to make a pig of yourself. Same thing with using toothpicks. Toothpicks were very frowned upon in A Winter's Tale. Shakespeare references the comic noting the nobleman by the way he's using the toothpick. And, you know, this is how you would realize that someone had a lot of money because these were usually jewel encrusted. They were made gilding and silver, that sort of thing. But like watching something the Kardashians do today, it may become a trend with other people as being something that's fashionable when really people of fashion or people that know manners would say, that's really gauche what they're doing. That's just incredibly ill-mannered what they're doing. And unfortunately, the younger generations or the impressionable people are picking up on it and copying it. So table manners were very specific, what you were and were not allowed to do during Shakespeare's time. And using toothpicks, that was one of the things that you were not supposed to do. Cleansing your teeth. We talked about napkins the last time. Cleansing your teeth. Most people didn't use toothbrushes, so they were told to cleanse their teeth, but not at the table. Cleansing your teeth meant using your finger to rub your teeth, which you shouldn't do at the table, or pick at your teeth with your fingernails, or rubbing your napkin over your teeth. That was one of the rules that was listed by either Giovanni de la Casa or Erasmus, one of the two mentioned uh, that you were not supposed to cleanse your teeth at the table. And, and in that time period, that's what it meant, wiping your teeth either with your finger or a napkin. Which ties in, I think, with their advice on just the state of communal eating, because at one point, I forget which book of advice mentions this, but it was important to demonstrate publicly to your fellow diners that your hands were clean because you were putting those hands in the food bowl that was then going to be, you know, passed to the next person. So I wonder, as you're telling me that, you know, cleansing your teeth had to do with using your hands to do that. I wonder if that ties into that expectation of don't, you know, there was an understanding that inside of your mouth is nasty. Don't stick your hands inside your mouth and then use them, you know, to continue eating there at the table. I wonder if there's a relationship there. There's absolutely a relationship. They didn't want your fingers anywhere other than putting the fingers in because you were supposed to use the fingers of courtesy. The fingers of courtesy were your thumb, your index finger, and your middle finger. So if you were very skilled, you could eat. And there were a lot of meats. Surprisingly, we think of the 1500s as being a time where there, you know, where food wasn't that plentiful. Actually, meat 
they had very high protein diets in the 1500s. It was vegetables and fruit that were difficult to get because they were delicacies. You needed a hothouse, but there were a lot of meats going into mouths in the 1500s. So you needed to be skilled to get that hot meat with just those three fingers into your mouth without the fingers going into your mouth. So we've talked about what it's polite to do or not do at a table, but in the 16th century, there was a particular manual called Galateo. Now, this was an Italian dinner manual, but it actually gave instructions about how to talk at a dinner table and what it was appropriate to say to your fellow diners. What can you tell us about the rules surrounding polite dinner conversation for Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, again, that was written by Giovanni della Casa, who wrote Galateo. Again, Miss Banners, when she reviewed a republication of his book back in the 1980s or 1990s, uh, she summarized it by saying, don't be gross. And you weren't supposed to talk about anything gross at the table. You weren't supposed to talk about someone's illness. You weren't supposed to talk about someone dying. You weren't supposed to talk about someone's murder. You weren't supposed to mention blood. You weren't supposed to mention bodily fluids. You weren't supposed to. It's all of the things that we still tell our kids not to talk about today at the table, or it's going to upset someone's appetite. Back in the 1500s, they knew, okay, this is going to upset someone if you talk about these things. You know, there were also warnings like don't blow your nose and then look into your napkin or your whatever you blew your nose into. And generally they referred to it as a napkin or a kerchief. Don't blow your nose and look into it. Don't hack something up. Don't cough something into your napkin or your cloth and then take a look at it at the table. So were the rules in the 16th century, was observing these rules considered important because there was an understanding of, of hygiene and cleanliness, or was it more about distinguishing between the classes? I think it's interesting that you point out a richly bedazzled toothpick would have uh, you know, identified someone as a noble because they had the money to buy that implement. But at the same time, picking at your teeth at the dinner table was considered not a noble activity or someone of, of breeding and refinement wouldn't have engaged in this activity. So I wonder why was it important to observe these rules and what kind of social impact was there if you decided to break them? Well, if you had a lot of money, if you were one of these, uh, what we would call nowadays influencers, let's say you were Lord so-and-so and you were walking around with a diamond encrusted toothpick in your mouth, picking at your teeth. People who know better would go, that's still gross. He shouldn't be picking his teeth. Look at that. I don't want to hear him and watch him picking his teeth. But somebody impressionable that really... <laughs> You know, looks at this guy as someone to model their behavior after is going to say, wow, I need one of those because then that will make me look classy. It's a lot like looking at what they call the influencers today. Back in the 1500s, who were the influencers that were able to get away with really horrible manners simply because they had money. Someone who's looked at in history like Henry VIII as having atrocious table manners and, you know, 
taking bites out of giant haunches of meat or eating giant turkey legs and throwing the bones. Henry VIII had incredibly good table manners and expected everyone at his court to exhibit the exact same incredibly good manners. I know you shared with us some wonderful resources in our last episode about the history of napkins and the history of dining for Shakespeare's lifetime. But I wonder if you have recommendations for specifically the history of table manners and some of these lovely tidbits you've shared with us today about Henry VIII's requirements and some of the toothpick references in A Winter's Tale. What are some of your books or resources you can recommend we use to explore this kind of history a little further? Well, Giovanni de la Casa's book, Galateo, is available in a modern form, and it's great reading for anyone who enjoys history. The Rules of Civility, written by Erasmus. Again, it's written in a contemporary form that you can read today. You can find it online. You can, you know, you can find excerpts from it. On all of these books, you can find on Edicopedia a lot of excerpts from these things. I have over 3,000 articles that you can read. If you're not quite willing to go so far as to buy the book, you can find references to these. I would say probably Lillian Eichler again, but her books are a bit dated. She was a sociologist, ethnographist. At the same time, she came from the late 1800s, early 1900s, and a lot of her stuff is dated and comes off, especially in this modern era, as being incredibly racist. So so glean, glean the good and separate, you know, what has not aged well with her book, but but still something worth reading. Whenever I do excerpts from books, I'm careful. I'm a complete believer in freedom of speech, but just the other night I had to take an entire section out of an article that was just wildly inappropriate to put in in modern day or even in you know I was born in 57 I wouldn't wouldn't have put it in a book then well we will place links to all of these resources in the show notes for today's episode so you can explore them further and dive right into turn of the 17th century with resources like Galateo and stuff from Erasmus as well. And you can see exactly what Shakespeare would have been referring to with what he considered good table manners. So make sure you stay tuned for the URL for where to find those. Now, Mara, as you know, every episode we ask our guests about a Desert Island book selection. And you picked Jane Austen for your last Desert Island selection with us on our episode last week. But I would like to give you the option to select a new Desert Island book. And this is the question that we pose to everyone here on That Shakespeare Life. And the question is, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. I would say James Clavell's Shogun. I read it in the early 1980s after seeing the miniseries. I was curious and it gives a it's just just an incredible look into uh, Japanese life at that time period. Wonderful book. That's an excellent selection. We did an episode on our show about the Shogun from Shakespeare's lifetime. So I am personally find that one exciting too. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I'm working on trying to get my sequel to What Have We Here? Uh, yesteryear, more What Have We Here? 
finished up. And then I am doing a book on all of my stories from my time teaching etiquette over the last 33 years, uh, different students that I've had young and, and old. I've had uh, kids from as, as young as four years old to adults in their early eighties that have come to me for a variety of reasons. And I'm putting all of those stories together because I keep hearing from other etiquette instructors. You need to write a book about all of this because I'm always learning every student. Every student brings me new situations that I learn from. That sounds fascinating. And I know we're looking forward to seeing that book come to fruition. Thank you so much, Mara Graber, for talking with us about the history of table manners and being here to share with us what it's like to eat at a table for Shakespeare's lifetime. If you're interested in another aspect of table history from 16th century England, come back to our episode and check out our feed for the napkins episode we did last week, where Mora shares even more history tidbits. Thank you so much for being here. I've enjoyed our conversation. It was my pleasure. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. Every rating and review that you offer on your listening platform helps other Shakespeareans find our show. And as you know, we love connecting with other Shakespeare friends. If you'd like to see visual history that coordinates with the conversation you're listening to today, including images of these napkins and the linens, the styles and designs of various napkins that were available in the 1500s and 1600s and on into the beginning of the 17th century towards the end of Shakespeare's life, then check out the show notes for today's episode. The show notes is a great place to find more information on Mara Graber, as well as direct links to the resources she mentions in the show today. You can find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode two. 291. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP291. If you love the life of William Shakespeare and you'd like to go even deeper to the history of turn of the 17th century England when Shakespeare was alive, then consider becoming a patron of That Shakespeare Life. Patrons of our show get access to over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms from some of the world's leading experts on Shakespeare history. In addition to these extra shows, patrons also get access to sneak peeks at upcoming guests where you can submit your own questions that you'd like to have asked during an interview. In addition to these extras, patrons also get access to our activity kits and classroom resources that coordinate with our show as well as with Shakespeare's Plays. Inside the patrons area is a great place to cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more and join us today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving next week and that you'll be back on Monday to learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life. <laughs>